0: All right, so uh, to start out with, I guess we will – I'll do the disclaimers uh, before anything else. Uh, Ben and I are not um, financial advisors, obviously. Uh, Whatever opinions that we provide here are just our opinions, uh, and we, we do not intend to be legally responsible for those opinions, so please don't sue us. Uh, In addition, because this is probably going to be shared across the uh, community, um, we'd like to say that any academic institutions, obviously, you know what we're referring to, that um, are involved with this, uh, I'm pretty sure their opinions aren't necessarily reflected with our opinions on like financial markets and stuff like that so so we're we're not the representatives of any particular school here in terms of our opinions they're just ours so yep. uh, getting those uh disclaimers out of the way uh, i guess we will start by um introducing ben uh ben would you like to um introduce yourself and
1: Sure. Uh, I'm Ben. I'm a freshman. Uh, I lead the stock market circle.
0: It's, it's a great circle to be a part of. We're going to have a, a, we're going to have a plug, uh near the end of today. Sorry, near the end of today's session. Um, but I guess we can wait for that. Um, so Ben, obviously you run the stock market circle and, uh, I run the economics podcast and we have a good integration of interviews and topics and just me ranting about stuff. Uh, so the first two episodes was me ranting about stuff. Uh, but today, I guess we would like to include you to turn my average ranting into something enjoyable for people to watch. You know? So <laughs> no, no pressure. Uh I guess uh, we can start out with, um, obviously, since you run the stock market circle, um, you'll probably have a good idea on what technicals and fundamentals are. But uh, for the people that are going to be listening to this, the two people that will listen to this, uh, can you explain to them if they have no prior knowledge or experience in investments in the stock market? what uh, technicals and fundamentals are and what they serve to do. And if there's any innovation in terms of the use of technicals and fundamentals in, um, in like modern day.
1: Yeah, yeah, so uh, here's, a, here's a brief explanation. So fundamentals are really the analysis of a company's, let's say financials, business plan, growth strategies, etc. cetera, um, basically the business. Whereas technicals, technicals are looking at the chart. So we're looking at price history uh, and what we're doing with that price history, where you can, you know, create indicators and find trends, et cetera. But we're looking at the price history, which is the um, when you think about it, price history is the uh, almost a measure of the past investor sentiment because it's how they were valuing the company, let's say a week ago or a month ago, or how they are valuing it over the past couple of weeks. Or so is it, you know, are they? Is the stock increasing? Is it decreasing? And so it's a difference there because a lot of times sometimes technicals and fundamentals will be um, won't be as related as you would think, right? Uh, the one time they kind of mesh is usually either when there's big news uh, that is changing the fundamentals or you know earnings calls as, as well. Uh, but usually most investors try to take a good glance at and a good look at both the fundamentals and the technicals and try to put those together uh, to guide their investment practices. Though there are some strategies that are um, the very short-term ones will usually only look at technicals, and the very long-term ones may only look at fundamentals. Uh, so it's very interesting to, to see that. And I would argue that there's a third type of analysis coming through, uh, and we're seeing more and more sentiment analysis, right? Uh, we've seen, especially with the coronavirus crash, things are moving less on the fundamentals, but even less on the technicals. We just saw, you know, we saw the uh, crash happen so fast, and it just it just flipped. And it's crazy to see how the sentiment of the market really is moving things so much more than perhaps the fundamentals and technicals in certain instances, especially with the prevalence of the Robinhood traders, right? The younger demographic that's creating pump and dump situations where they're pumping a stock up and the sentiment is changing and then they dump it and it falls back down. It's very interesting. I would say that definitely there is this third type of analysis, sentiment analysis that's coming out. And it's gonna be interesting to try and quantify it because it's not so it's not easy as, as like let's say technicals. Technicals are numbers, right? You see a chart. It was, you know, stock went up five percent today, went up ten percent last month. Fundamentals, you know, the earnings are earnings per earnings per share were like five dollars, you know, the price, price to earnings ratio is like twenty. You know, that's very easy to quantify. Sentiment isn't, and I would say the only things I I can think of that you could easily quantify for sentiment would probably be the analyst ratings. Um, and that's actually probably it. The sentiment is really about the news that you find online as well. So it's interesting to see that start to become prevalent and start to become really integral to uh, the average investor.
0: Yeah, so I just want to clarify a couple of things. When, when you refer to the price, you mean the price of the stock at a particular yes, moment. And exactly. technicals are more about tracking the price of is stock from day to day or week to week or month to month.
1: It's and, whatever you want it to be, exactly, yeah.
0: And uh, just to explain to the viewers where where technicals and fundamentals departure, because you, you'd think theoretically that um, the price should match the underlying value of, of whatever the, the, the stock is, the businesses. Well, you see uh, in times of, I think the, the term is literally irrational exuberance where where people don't look at um, the, where people don't look at the underlying value of the business, but because the stock market is going up or because interest rates are low, or which just allowed for more money to be pumped into the market. the the price of the stock skyrockets and you, you can look at the 2008 crash. I think the best example of fundamentals and technicals going awry is actually the the um, uh, the dot com bubble of 1999, right? So that's an example. And then there's always the flip side where investors are wary after a crash to get, into, to get into the market, but the fundamentals of certain companies may say, okay, well, maybe we should be investing in something like this. But overall, hesitancy. Um, inhibits that i guess so technically the the difference between fundamentals and technicals is more in like human behavior aspects right so
1: yeah supply and demand right that's where in the end that's what moves the the market that's what moves the stocks it's not um you know the fundamental of the company as much as the supply and demand that's in the end that's um what's moving things
0: so uh i just one more question on sentiment analysis how like I don't know if you'll be able to answer this, but what what are some of the ways that um, the industry is trying to quantify this in some sort of like useful way?
1: Yeah, that's a hard hard question because I don't think they they have yet as much. It, right now, I think it stems mainly from news articles. Um, but there are places, for example, StockTwits. So StockTwits is like Twitter for stocks, literally. And I believe they have certain metrics on there where it shows you um, how many, how act, active the thread is. So how many people are, how many messages there are per day. And you can see as certain you know stocks are starting to heat up, you'll see the amount of messages that are under that thread uh, per day start to increase. I know there's something called Robin Track, and so Robin Track was using open source or just um, open data that Robinhood used to give out. Uh, which had the number of Robinhood users holding each stock. So you see, it, like let's say Apple, it would be like twenty thousand Robinhood users, you know, holding that, and you could track it over time. And so Robin tracked it as they tried to. They looked at that and they saw, okay, what are the biggest changes of you know new new investors or old investors? So you can see the supply and demand in action in terms of um, new investors piling in and and old investors coming out. Um, and so they were, they were quantifying that as well. And so I think both of those are two good examples of. Being able to see the sentiment in terms of um, even because supply and demand, it may not originally affect the the um, stock if you only have the small investors moving in and out who are actively trading um, because just because of the nature of supply and demand, there's a lot of there's less liquidity there. But even so, um, it, it'll start, You if you look at those patterns, you may, be start, you may start to see, oh, wow, all these new investors are piling in. It hasn't hit the news yet. We haven't seen any fundamental change yet. We haven't seen it affect the technicals yet, but we're starting to see. Um this this buildup is accumulation. And so I'd say those are two examples of sentiment analysis being quantified.
0: that's uh, that's really interesting. I you know it, it's now i I think one of the questions that I would have and this is again not not something that I expect you to answer, especially this one. but um it's can that be manipulated in the sense of like if people are searching for deliberately good news right to try and pump up markets like in, in a time where like the news may be mixed from a bunch of different sources if if you have an app like twitter right where people like or stock Twitter, i think was what you said yeah. where people are deliberately searching for good news because they know if the algorithm if they search enough time times for good stories, then the the app prompts said stories, right? And then
1: if- I think that's how it works on Twitter. Stock Foot is interesting because I think it's I think there's there's no I could be wrong, maybe there is a liking system, but I when I look at it, I don't see things by in order by like how popular they are, just by the most recent, which is actually really interesting as I think about it with what you're saying, perhaps that's one of the reasons why they made that UI choice to prevent that from happening.
0: Yeah, because like I could see like people that are part of a boom that are part of a bull rush just pushing stories along that are positive that A may not actually reflect market sentiment in order to try and push the market further yeah. up.
1: It happens all the time, especially with usually those people try to focus on one individual stock because they can um, have a lot more impact there. And so they, they do that all the time. And you see, well, you see it both ways, too. It's very interesting because there's always there's bulls, right? When you say bulls, it's someone who is bullish on a stock, meaning they think they want it to go up or there's bears. They want, want it to go down. Um, so you can bet for or against a stock, right? So you can actually make money if the stock goes down. And there's lots of people that will, on these message boards, they'll have these um, bearish messages. So they'll have messages like, this is going down, it's tanking, like, it's a fraud, you know, and there's other people who are saying, you know, this will go 10x in a couple days, you know, the good news coming soon, stuff that's really absent of, uh, absence of content. Uh, But it's interesting to see, because it does go both ways.
0: Yeah, uh, I I mean, I I was a little concerned about that. But, I mean, obviously, those those guys are uh, the guys that created that software are are obviously smart enough to see the pitfalls that we've been talking about. Um, So I want to move into some stuff about particular sectors. Um, So the energy sector is down 61% on revenues. By the way, all my information comes from Fidelity and one piece from ThinkAdvisor, so th- this is all reputable. Uh, so the energy sector is down 61% on revenues and down 31% year over year on stock prices. However, renewables are the only sector up 44%. So uh, what does this mean for the industry? One of my questions is, uh, given that I think at least from a I don't know socio political perspective, the the integration of renewable energy in our society has not been as high as it has like been hyped up to be like the green revolution and all of that has not come about practically in society right uh but if that's the case and especially during a pandemic uh why why do you think a sector which does not have a good footprint into the economy is one of the um, is is one of the ones that's being propped up, rather than something that you would consider more more reliable and more in like practical use because everybody uses oil or whatnot. Uh, rather than yeah. rather than an industry like that.
1: I would argue it's starting to gain a footprint. Actually, um, I know in some other countries it definitely has a huge footprint. I think I read an article the other day where. I think it was either Australia or New Zealand, I could be wrong here, but I, I believe it said that uh, for a whole day, they were all their energy in the entire country was powered by solar panels. So I think that um, in other countries, it's a, it's a huge footprint for green energy. Here, not as much. And so uh, I, I think that's interesting because this overperformance of renewables, what we saw, um, could suggest that, first off, it could suggest the presence of ethical investing. So we're starting to see this younger demographic be more concerned about the ethics of investing, right? They want to um, use their money for use more money for good. I've seen these like campaigns. Uh, And so the idea is that if you invest in, you know, good companies, companies that are doing good, uh, that will encourage them to continue to do good. And the companies that perhaps aren't doing good, right, wouldn't do uh, as good. And they perhaps perhaps would change their strategy. And so perhaps we're seeing the prevalence of ethical investing as well, especially in a time with so much volatility that I think a lot of it is the younger demographic trading uh, a lot. So that could be one of the reasons. I think also with um, COVID and coronavirus, we saw a lot of uh, places, we saw that green energy and getting there and perhaps lessening our carbon footprint maybe isn't as hard as we thought in terms of um, practicality, not economically, I'm just saying in terms of Um, stopping things. So we we look at, with COVID, when everything was shut down, I saw these articles from around the world. We saw, you know, places with smoke, had been covered with smoke daily um, for like 20 years were completely clear. I I think there was a story I was looking in the, um, for, um, where is it? I forget, Italy. Italy. And you know those, the rivers. And so it was so clear. um, Someone actually photoshopped a dolphin in in there. And it was believable because the waters were so clear. Um, everyone thought that there were dolphins there. Uh, there actually weren't. But uh, it was so clear that, that actually seemed feasible. And those, I don't think those have been clear for so many years. And so I think people are starting to realize that uh, perhaps it might be worth it to go to green energy and renewables. The question is, you know, how do you do that? I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not going to comment on anything in terms of the economics of that. I'm just commenting on the sentiment here, which is one of the reasons, that, or the main reason I think that the sector's up. I also think the sector's up probably because, Uh, Even during a pandemic, there's still demand for green energy because it just, as you said, there isn't, it doesn't have that as large of a footprint, I believe. And so, because of that, there's a lot of room for growth. So, for certain things like solar panels and installing solar panels, I think that's happening a lot, especially as we're seeing more and more natural disasters, whether you're talking about the fires or I think the the storms, you're seeing people being cut off from from power for days. And so, I think that people are starting to move to uh, renewable energy as one option in terms of having their own power source. So I would say not only has it perhaps the demand um, done better than the done better than the non-renewable energy uh, during coronavirus, I would say also, as I said, the ethical um, investing and the the sentiment perhaps pushed it up too
0: so um, in terms of a future outlook, and again this this is so difficult to do because yeah. it involves politics and politics makes everything messy but um do you, do you anticipate um, some of the some of the stocks or the index on the um, on the Dow sort of being usurped by big oil or coal or natural gas? And what I mean by that is like acquisitions and kind of, and that kind of stuff. And do you think investors are pricing in the the, the possibility? of acquisitions when they buy into these stocks and for example if you have two or three stocks that are green energy stocks and then all of a sudden ExxonMobil decides to acquire them. What do you see happening to the price of those stocks? And again, yeah,
1: that's a good that's a good point.
0: This may never happen, right?
1: Yeah. But
0: it also very well could, so I'm just throwing it out there as a possibility.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it much. Uh, I would say so usually after an acquisition uh, the c- larger company always has to pay a premium otherwise uh, premium for what it's listed as so it's always if you own a company that's going to get get acquired um, you always almost always I believe make money now the company that's actually acquiring the other one if people don't think it's a good deal that company com- can come down so you might see ExxonMobil if they ever acquired another company they, their stock might be down but the company they acquired might be it might be up like 20% percent um, And so it's interesting because maybe it is possible. Maybe some of the reasons there's optimism is because of people hoping for acquisitions. I don't know. I haven't seen that yet uh, in terms of the article, any articles saying that. But it does appear to be perhaps a good strategy for some of these larger companies if they want to shift towards renewable energy. And if they really feel the pressure in the future, if ethical investing grows to a very large extent, and they feel the pressure of that, which I I don't know if it will grow that large, but if it does... I definitely could see um, larger companies like that starting to purchase some of these renewable energy companies uh, to sort of expand their business model uh, to include those. I, I think that's a really interesting point, and we'll just have to see where that goes. I don't think it's happening anytime soon, or at least based off what I'm reading, I don't see people um, being aware of that possibility. However, if it starts to happen, I think it'd be very interesting to look at.
0: Ah, uh, okay. So I wanted to uh move on now to the financial sector uh because you know uh everybody cares about the financial sector um these days i mean any day everybody cares about the financial sector but especially now um according to fidelity the banking sector has lost 33 percent on the year but uh capital markets are actually uh moderately up I think like close to six percent. Uh do you have any first of all, can you like provide for the viewers and myself the the distinction between uh capital markets and the banking sector? And do you have any explanation for why this particular sector is above other components of the financial sector such as uh banking?
1: Yeah, yeah. So Uh, overall the the overall financial sector is really diverse we have like banks insurance credit services asset management etc and so what capital markets are banking is um, different capital markets are actually quite uh, different as i said because from my understanding they're places where equity and debt is bought and sold so we could be talking about stocks actually or we could be talking about debt perhaps even um, one day mortgages etc and so it's interesting when you think about the impact of COVID on these places for banks, I'm sure it definitely hasn't been good. I'm sure they, they have to move. I mean, some of them are online, but I don't think most of them have you know, in-store locations or in-person locations as well, which had to be closed down. And so I would say that um, that's probably one of the major reasons because of uh, just a business model, as well as the, the impact of COVID on them. I would say those two reasons are, or those are the two reasons why we've seen this difference in um, performance. And it's very interesting to see. I know yesterday we had the um, vaccine announcement from Pfizer where they said, you know, 90% effectiveness. We haven't seen that tested anywhere. It also doesn't tell you how long it'll last. So it could last like two months and it's like 90% effectiveness, but we'll have to see. Um, but the stocks love that. And so I think the banking sector, most banks were up like 10 to 15%, which is nuts. And so it tells you that COVID has, people think that, well, it tells you two things. People think that COVID has had a really bad impact on the banking sector and it will continue to um unless we have a really good vaccine and two it also is probably a sign of the sector rotation we saw away from these stay-at-home tech stocks and into these underperforming stocks and so i would say another reason why the banks have been doing uh, worse is probably because of the low interest rate environment of course uh, but yeah those are my thoughts on that topic
0: so um I, I want to clarify one thing. The, the capital markets you're talking about is the buying and selling of debt, right?
1: Or equity, but yeah.
0: Um, so the... Okay, so I guess the question becomes then um, if the banking sector isn't really making money because commercial loans aren't able to like be paid off and mortgages aren't able to be paid off, uh why isn't why aren't capital markets like facing the same sort of problems or like so basically what i'm asking is how do capital markets make their money do they make money off of the loans or do they make money in any other sort of way
1: i would imagine it's most likely a transaction fee which would explain why they're doing better because if there's a large volume of buying and selling with equity and debt, I'd imagine they make more money. Uh, And so that's probably, that's that's my thoughts there. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I would imagine that's how they are able to make a profit.
0: That, uh, that makes sense. Um, I, I mean, I have to do more research too, into why in the world anyone would be buying debt right now. Uh, But, that is I, I really hadn't thought of the the transaction fee and the, the increase in volume is obviously understandable because more businesses more people need money too so uh going to specific banks and this refers to Warren Buffett uh one of the richest men in the world obviously that fluctuates day to day so I can't really give you a accurate picture on that. Uh, But looking at two banks, uh, Bank of America and Wells Fargo. And by the way, this is important because Warren Buffett is a value investor, which means that he holds three or four or five stocks, but he has ridiculously high ownership in all of them. Uh, And so if he decides to get out of one and into the other, it's, not only is it going to move the stock, but it's a big deal in terms of market sentiment.
1: Yeah, it could move the entire sector. I believe that happened with the banks and the airlines at some point when he was announcing um, new buys and new sells.
0: Absolutely. So my question for you, Ben, is: uh, We we just heard the news that Wells Fargo is selling off its asset management business and their wealth management business has lost uh, 64% in income compared to quarter three last year. Uh, this is according to Think Advisor, by the way. Uh, what do you make of the changes that Buffett has made to his portfolio, notably, of course, dumping Wells Fargo exposure and increasing Bank of America exposure? And why do you think the difference in the, resu- in the like, value of the two banks, N- not in terms of the stock prices, right, but like in terms of how they're doing. W- why do you think it's been as stark as it has?
1: Yeah, so why don't I start up with Wells Fargo? Uh, I remember, I think it was about four years ago, when they had the fake account scandal, right? They actually made cl- accounts for their clients without asking for permission. Uh, it was in- at least it was uncovered four years ago. Uh, And they ended up having to pay $3 billion, which is a lot. And so I read something recently that they were the only major lender to lose money during COVID, which is still ongoing. So it shows how they're really underperforming the entire banking sector, uh, which may explain why um, Buffett went and dumped some of the Wells Fargo and went into Bank of America, right? Perhaps he likes the banking sector, but perhaps he wanted to shift. And so, but why did they underperform? And that's um, a question. And I was looking at this and I did some research. Uh, so one thing I see too is they slashed their dividend from fifty cents to ten cents, which is huge. Um, and what they did last year is they tried to hire. They actually they hired a new CEO uh, to try and fix things, right? Except um, I don't think much has happened since then in terms of I mean, perhaps some has happened, but I don't think they've really been able to turn around. Perhaps um, Buffett thought they could, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why he hadn't sold until now. Uh, but I saw that Wells Fargo increased their operating losses by 750 million last quarter because of ongoing legal issues, right? So I think it's all this um, bad management that's still sticking around. Um, It's from years ago, but it's still there. And I think together, it's going to be hard to change that. And I believe also consumer sentiment about the the bank has come down uh, considerably, especially with all the legal issues and the account scandals. And so Bank of America, I'm less familiar with, but I believe that they're probably definitely doing better. Uh, at least from the stock price. And so I'd imagine that uh, Buffett thought it was the next best thing, and perhaps he wants to cash in on the financial sector.
0: All right, um, you know, it is, it's is—it's interesting. Uh, I didn't, first of all, I didn't know the, the legal fees would be that much of a component of operating losses, right? <laughs> Uh, but I mean, when it's Wells Fargo, I guess you could understand. For for context, uh, this became such a big deal that the I believe it is former CEO of the company had to testify in, in front of the Financial Services Committee and the Senate. I believe I believe that's I, it. May have been the Senate and the House. It may have just been the Senate. But I know for a fact that they had to or I think it was a he, had to come up and testify in front of the Congress at some level. So uh, this has been an ongoing issue and a big one. And it's uh, this comes from, uh, Ben, can you describe a little bit about where this issue sort of comes from, this, this legal um, pitfall for well, all comes from?
1: Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about the fake account scandal, I think that, I don't know too much about it, but I think that um, it's because, well, I think it just made the fake accounts for their clients without asking for permission, right? As I said, I think that that's um, pretty much where it started, at least that's where things started to be uncovered. And I imagine, I believe there's bad management throughout, I'm sure, uh, which is why we're still seeing all the, the legal losses. Uh, but other than that, I don't know too much more, um, but that's kind of my current knowledge right now, though I can look more into it perhaps and get back to you on that one.
0: You know, it is interesting um, when we look at balance sheets, right, it's you look at legal expenses on stuff and you think, well, that's a temporary sort of expenditure. So when you look at a balance sheet, usually you'll say, well, if it's outstanding legal expenses because of one big court case that doesn't really represent the legal history of the company, um, then maybe you should stay in that stock because it's currently undervalued. But once the legal expenses are gone, you've actually got a really good value in a stock. Now, what's concerning, I would think to investors is if if I can think like this, certainly Warren Buffett can. So he probably assumes that uh, there are long-standing legal issues that aren't going to be resolved very soon. So I think that would be concerning like held that security. Um, I want to shift to this uh, and that is the stuff that you guys probably care about the listeners in today and that is the uh, discretionary consumer goods market. Uh, you know it looks like restaurant and hotel stocks are only down four percent on a year and luxury goods um are actually up uh given that we have seen major luxury retail stores like new marcus um collapse and restaurants and hotels close all around what do you think the reason for their for their relative strength um the stock's relative strength in relation to what are some really not great economic outcomes is
1: Yeah. So uh, when you're looking at sectors like this, it's good to think, because we're talking about COVID, right, the effect of COVID. So if we look at what's done best, it's sectors like technology. More and more people are using technology, so it's supposed to go up, right? And then with with sectors that are doing the worst, you know, airlines, for example, they've had, I believe they're at 35% capacity still, very small amount, uh, right? And so uh, people aren't using it anymore for now. Uh, But the effect of COVID on, let's say, hotels perhaps isn't quite as bad. Uh, we're seeing just like restaurants are starting to recover. Um, you know, they cleaned every room and they're, they're you know, with the restaurants that are outside, I think sometimes they're being brought indoors in many states or they've already been brought indoors. And so even though margins can be slim, I, I know for those companies and that, that sector, uh, I think they're still able to produce a profit or at least they're they're getting there. And because of that, I believe they are uh, probably why not down as much this year, though I would argue that that's the fact that they're only down, or their luxury goods are up and and the uh, restaurant hotels are only down 4%, might be a little too high. Uh, Luxury goods, perhaps, is is fair, though I don't know if people are, you know, staying at home buying buying Gucci from, like, Amazon, you know? Um, But maybe. And so it's interesting. I have to look at the financials of those companies. Um, So in the end, I'm not entirely sure uh, why I've done so well from a fundamental perspective. Um, I would say it's just, as I said, And from a technical perspective, I would say that people like to buy what they know, too. And so what they know a lot of times is technology. And technology in the charts, they don't look like charts. They look like rocket ships. I mean, it's nuts. And so um, I I think when you look, when you see a chart of a brand, you know, and it's not, it hasn't come up like a rocket ship yet. It's not like 30% higher than its um, previous high before COVID. People are more uh, likely to purchase that perhaps because they feel like they're getting a good deal on a brand they know. And so I'd say that's one of the major reasons, perhaps, that these companies could be um, up or kind of flat for the year, despite the fundamental challenges.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it's, uh, that, that slogan that you use should be plastered. Like, if, if, you, if you start a hedge fund, your, your, your advertisement should be, they aren't sharks, they're rocket ships. That that would be that would be such a good slogan to <clears> have <throat> as a hedge fund. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but so it's um a question that I would have about that sector, I guess, is that we talked about financials, um, where Warren Buffett has uh, controlling stakes in, ha- or at least had controlling stakes. He may actually still have. A controlling stake in Wells Fargo, and by controlling stake, he 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 as an individual holds the highest percentage um, of the stock compared to like all the other individuals um, that hold the stock. So uh, my my saying this incorrectly if you want
1: to clarify please. i think that well i, would, I don't know if that would be controlling stake but that would probably be the largest stake compared to the other controlling stake i believe is 51 percent or more so we probably and it probably makes sense to you i don't think he has 51 or more he probably as you said um has the largest stake compared to other individuals um but i don't think he would i, I doubt he has 51 percent or more otherwise i think he'd probably would see more changes with the business than we have
0: yeah what i meant what i meant to like get at is like you can own 10% of the shares of stock and still like, have the most because everybody else has a very small percentage of shares of the total shares. Um, but like we see examples where that happens in finance. Uh, you can look at Apple and Berkshire and that kind of way too. Um, so like the the idea that people are investing in name brands and not based on fundamentals usually aligns with people that are inexperienced, experienced, right? The Robinhood traders as you've talked about, or less experienced traders in general. So like, why why do you think um, there is less of one, one person or one company owning a conglomeration of stock in these industries rather than like others that we've talked about with the specific example of Berkshire?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think you'd have to think also about not only whether they're holding it, but also whether they're trading it. Because they could be holding it, but if usually if they're holding these sectors which have been hit hard with COVID, I'd imagine they're doing it for the long term and the fundamentals. And so because of that, I would imagine they're not doing much buying and selling. So therefore, in terms of supply and demand, they're not really moving the stock as much, where you have these, um, the more, more traders, you know, we could say of a younger demographic or just more impulsive traders who are trading uh, more frequently and around um, less substantial metrics, I guess you could say. Uh, as, as I mentioned, I guess you, w- you would consider the name of a company or how you, well you know it to be a little bit of a less substantial metric, though you could also, still good to factor in, I guess. Um, so I would say that's probably uh, the answer to your question there
0: so the the more institutional investors are holding it or the more value investors are holding it for 10 years down the line when these big companies will be able to make up their losses
1: i would imagine yeah though in 10 years i think things will be pretty different for some of these sectors so we'll have to see
0: yeah sure not, not like i mean obviously like i mean We could have restaurants with robots and kiosks instead of actual humans. So obviously things change a lot in society in 10 years. Um, If anyone had told me Donald Trump would have been president 10 years ago, I would have laughed at you. But uh, things change, as is evident in every walk of life. Um, So I want to go now to the... So, first of all, I, I, I want to elaborate, Tom. Um, I want to expound on that last point. Uh, is there any industry where, again, I, I don't expect you to read balance sheets every day, right? So, if, <laughs> yeah. you, don't have a great, if you don't have a great answer to this, that's, that's totally fine. Is there any industry where you would be concerned that there's fundamental weakness regardless of the fact that there's a pandemic?
1: Hmm, that's really interesting. I have to think about it. Definitely not technology, because the fundamentals are great, but in terms of the valuation of the stock, it's pretty crazy. Uh, but not technology. Um, I mean, maybe oil and gas, just because I've seen the performance has been pretty bad the pandemic, but I guess if the pandemic does affect that too. I would have to take a closer look at the balance sheet, um, but I think the price of oil has come down considerably, and so I don't know if you consider that pandemic or not. Uh, but that could be one sector. I'm just thinking. I I retail and brick and mortar stores. If you asked me like five years ago, I said, you know, retail brick and mortar stores or at least three years ago. Now, some of it's priced in. A lot of them are transferring, especially with the pandemic. Now they're transferring things online. So I would say it's a little less, um, a little less worrisome, but I'm not sure. It's a really good question. I would have to take more time to think about it and look at some balance sheets and, and see some statistics for the overall sectors.
0: Yeah, that that's um, that's really interesting. If you if you look at it, it's funny because there's also the question of like, has fundamental weakness been exacerbated by COVID, right? In the sense of, if if you look at brick and mortar sales, that there, there, there were questions two three years ago. Like, I, I saw an article prior to the pandemic about how private equity just like completely ruined toys R Us. Um and that's mostly that's like like forget about the private equity debate, but that's primarily because Toys R Us did not have an online business model. So people just bought toys from Amazon, right? Uh so when you look at the collapse of brick and mortar shops and and retail that has been exacerbated by this push not to go anywhere because of COVID-19. So it's interesting when we look at oil and gas and I'll have to study this too, is there any, has there been any fu- fundamental problem in that it's been exacerbated by COVID-19 that was part of the industry before? Um, so that, perhaps,
1: no, Yeah, perhaps demand issues, I don't know uh, for sure but I think that well first off we know with the pandemic there's been less demand And then I just look at the price of oils come down considerably. And then you look at overall the past, I think, year, I looked at, you know, a heat map, which is just looking at the performance of all the different sectors uh, with either green or red. And you see green everywhere. Then you see red on the bottom corner, which is all the oil and gas companies. Uh, So that's definitely an interesting thing to think about in terms of the long term performance and, and why that is.
0: All right, I want to now move towards, uh, I want to now move towards a question about the technology sector. Uh, Something I know, I I mean, I have, I am personally not good with technology. Uh, So, you know, this this is more about, uh, this is more in your wheelhouse, I think, but uh, the two main components of success in the sector. And by main component, I mean like the highest gains because technology has had, it's the tech sector has had, you know, widespread gains, but one particular section of the sector can be up 6%. I mean, another, another part can be up 61 so exactly. that's that sort of is the distinction that I'm making here. So uh, based on the, the the data that I was looking at, the, the two highest um, risers are software and uh, applications for business and communication and hardware. Is there anything uh, from a technical perspective that suggests that these stocks may be overvalued, uh, i.e., that they continually break out of resistance? Or are these sectors the future of value-based stocks? And what I mean by that is, is there some intrinsic value in the industry that comes from the fact that that the entire world is going to be changed by this? Um, So what do you think in the future is going to define whether this is just a technic, technical, technicals-influenced bubble or these kind of rises are proof that tech is a value investing industry in the future.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. What you said about the, um, what was it, uh, I think you're just saying about the values because everyone, tech, tech is going to change the future. And so that's how, that's why um, they're going to, their value is stocks. Now it's so funny because I, I think I watched like a documentary about the, the dot-com boots and that's exactly what they said. It's so funny because uh, there was a connection there. I think a little less so because now it's been 20 years and they really are a huge you know part of our lives. And you look at like Amazon and Apple or the stocks that were trading back then um, and they were down, they were down like 60%. Now they're up like a thousand times what they were then. So there was truth in that, except there were just too many technology stocks for them all to do um, crazy well. And so, but now it's, it's definitely different. So it's a complicated question. Uh, and I'm gonna take a second to think about how to organize the answer here. Hmm. I guess for the technicals, for the technicals uh, it's a little harder to figure out if something's overvalued or not. Um, from technicals alone, I think you have to look at fundamentals because overvalued is all about um, the fundamentals. So, if I w- to look at the fundamentals, I think it depends. It's a case by case basis, right? A lot of times, you look at these large leaders in their their sector, the tech sector, um, and, or individual industries, and they're you know it's crazy. They're they're like ten times or even a hundred times revenue, right? The market cap, how big they are, um, in terms of how the market prices them to be. And so, the the reason why they're so big is because people are um, hoping that in you know, 20, 30 years that the, um, the they'll be the leader of their industry and they'll price that in. And then um, what will happen is that um, they will start to fill in, or at least by then f- have filled in that valuation. And so, especially with interest rates rates so low, that's one of the reasons why we're seeing that. Um, however, we have to look at the individual cases and, and think about if that's practical, right? Uh, it's something, it's something called price to earnings ratio. So basically, you kind of compare it basically in the end you're comparing the overall market cap of a stock which is how much the market prices it to be valued at and the overall amount of earnings they're making the company's making and if you look at certain stocks the price to earnings ratio is through the roof like for most stocks for like automobile stocks um it's usually like 14 15 and there's some tech stocks it's like a <laughs> thousand not, not always uh, a lot of times it's like you know 60 uh, it also depends on how much it's not a factoring in the revenue because there could be a lot of operating margin or losses and they have a small margin um, but it, it can be crazy and so I think it's a, a real case-to-case basis like for example Cloudflare net um, they power like a huge amount of the internet I first figured out I figured that out when they went down one day and like half the internet was gone but they were only like billion stock. stock. And I was like, wow, they power half the internet. They've got to be more. And I I went in and they um, have been doing really well since then. they announced some new platforms and and et cetera. And you have to look for those stocks where there's some some fundamental value that people aren't pricing in yet, or at least they may know about it, but um, it hasn't really taken off yet. And so that's probably the best way to figure things out. Um, you know, as I said, a lot of the charts uh, for tech stocks look nuts uh, right now, but we'll have to see what happens. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a huge sector-wide crash, but if I think certain stocks, tech stocks, are perhaps in the bubble, so we may see some changes there.
0: So I want to ask you about that particular case uh, because I don't know about that case, and that sounds very interesting. Why exactly did uh, the why exactly did it go under the under the radar for so long if it if it was like powering half the internet somebody should have at least like understood the scale of it right so what like was it revenue that was that was lagging what 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 exactly well i think um we can make this more generic actually Um, because it can help people that want to invest. What exactly are some of the amateurish traps that people look at in terms of value stocks that tell them that, okay, this is worth a lot less than it actually is worth, right? Because people were not buying this stock that represents half of the internet. so what, what sort of traps were in that case that you think can provide potential lessons to people investing uh, now and those who maybe yeah. want?
1: Them? You have to factor in two things. One, intellectual property. What do they have? This is, I mean, this is not quite intellectual property, but it's not something that's generating as much revenue right now, but um, there's real fundamental value to what they have, but we don't see that price into the balance sheet yet. And so that's one thing you have to look for, um, especially things that have you know a common name. For example, like Netflix, right? Everyone knows Netflix. Um, things like that where, you know, I wouldn't say it's a value stock right now, but I would say that um, that's kind of an example of what the intellectual property thing can be. And then the future growth, but not only looking at future growth in terms of how much has it been growing previously and factoring that in, like a oh, 100% growth in revenue last year to this year, to year and next year it'll be grow 100%. What I'm saying is, you have to look at the overall sector too. And if they're leading in that, or at least the overall industry, and if they're leading in the industry, they're an industry leader, then you can factor that in to say, okay, well, the industry is going to boom soon. And so these stocks are probably going to um, increase very rapidly soon too. Uh, So I would say both of those, sometimes people can do too much or factor in that too much. I would say the intellectual property stuff not as much, um, but in terms of being a leader in the industry and it gets overhyped, or at least the industry gets overhyped. That happens all the time. We saw it with 3D printing. We saw it with cannabis stocks. So cannabis stocks are coming back now that we have a lot of legalization. I think there's like four stock, or four states that voted to legalize it um, in the election. And then in December, they're gonna have a, at a federal level, I believe, they're going to vote to legalize it nationwide, which would be interesting to see. So those stocks are doing actually pretty well. Um, it's a very interesting sector to watch. So I'd say those are the two things that people may discount when looking at a stock from a value perspective.
0: That's uh, very interesting. Um, you know, uh, we've, we've got like eight minutes left and I want to move to REITs. Uh, but before that, I, I think it's important to ask, do you think when looking at intellectual property, especially given theft from particular foreign governments in big amounts, do do you think that that's sort of a a downside risk of that in, in terms of like like it can be stolen from not not in this particular case obviously but that intellectual property is at risk and you know the, the country that I'm referring to is like is is China um, so to reduce intellectual property exposure risk right. Do you think investing in both countries is actually
1: the best way to go? It's actually very interesting because I know that um, a lot of times people may, usually what you do when you're trying to invest in foreign stocks, at least for me, and I've seen this popular strategy, is you try to find whatever kind of model, is, business model is very successful in so the United States. They try to find that in another country. So I think there's Yandex, I think is the, that's the name? I don't know if you're getting that wrong. It's like the Google of Russia. Uh, you look at, you know, Alibaba is the Amazon of China. You know. IQ is the the uh, Netflix of China. You know, different places, and so you try to find those models. And uh, because of that, those are usually a good good stocks to purchase. Sometimes it depends, but just based off of those those business models that are already proven in different places. And you have to always you know keep in mind is the U.S. one version having trouble uh, piercing that market. Is that why they could still grow in in that market? Because you don't want you know, let's say Google um, got really popular in Russia then Yandex or I believe that's the name, uh, would have some issues, right? So you have to make sure it's not going to kind of leak into that other country. But that's what I would say is an interesting strategy for for that, and I guess with intellectual property, it is riskier because you're, you're. I would say it's, it's kind of as risky just as much when you're trying to look at growth stocks, because for growth stocks, you're, trying, you're pricing in possible uh, growth in the future, right? So you have to price that in, it's not a guarantee. And so for intellectual property and such, I would say it's the same. I don't know if it can be stolen, as I'm sure it can, but I don't know if that has much of an effect. I think it's more about it coming to fruition because um, you could have good intellectual property, but if you can't profit off of that, then there's an issue. Maybe it's a reason why they haven't been able to profit off of it yet. So I would say those are the two things to, to look at. Yeah, it's, it's
0: interesting how investing in allegorical companies in a sense can Reduce that risk in terms of if, if if I'm not saying the Google of China would do this. Um, I, I don't I don't really want to get into international politics right now. But uh, if if we're if if the I mean we don't even have to make about China. We we can just say any country steals from another country, right? The intellectual property from another country. What's
1: well, interesting you know, when you think about stealing too, because some of the ones i mentioned it kind of it kind of is just well i don't know what it's dealing, but it's interesting because they are the exact same model so perhaps that is is kind of the same thing right yeah
0: um so you can like maybe so it's, it's as if especially if you have like a smaller company that can't survive in the u.s because of labor costs and and all of this other stuff and their one advantage in the market is intellectual property you can sort of hedge against that risk by looking at companies that, like, may have, by looking at uh, sectors that may have, may have an advantage in other uh, parts of the world, I guess. Um, So that's an interesting aspect. Uh, Lastly, I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about well you know I was gonna talk about uh, reefs and stuff like that but I, I'm gonna skip that I'm actually ask you a question so when, when you invest in international markets uh, we've been talking about the theft of intellectual property and obviously that's illegal but I guess the question that I have is is like is there any risk in investing in companies that do that kind of thing, but are international in the sense of like they're not really going to be held they're not really going to be held accountable in their home countries if if they're stealing stuff, right? Especially if they're like state sponsored. Um,
1: so well, I do wonder also too if business model is the same thing as intellectual property in terms of theft. It's one of my I have to look more into that because I'm not sure. I, I guess like intellectual property might just mean, you know, the name and the brand and that could be it versus a business model overall that's been done a couple of times, like Google, like a search engine, right? I wouldn't say, you know, if I wanted to make a search engine right now, I don't think I'm quite um, stealing intellectual property. But of course, if I wanted to um, take the Google logo and like (laughs) pretend I'm Google, that might be a a theft of intellectual property, probably a lot of other things. Um, So it's interesting to think about that. I would say I, mean, I would say there's probably not that much risk in that because I don't know if it's illegal as much, the business model, unless it's like the very specifics are taken as well. Um, but I, you have to see. I know sometimes it's hard with the transparency issues for foreign stocks. Um, and sometimes there'll be, I think, the IQ that Netflix of China had. Uh, the, the SEC launched an investigation there. Uh, and that kind of rattled some of the other China, Chinese stocks as well. Uh, so I think you know that can always happen. Uh, but... It's interesting there's still always a lot of opportunity for those stocks too because a lot of times they haven't blown up like their u.s counterparts
0: yeah just one final thing before i get to go i, I, I was m- more looking towards like there's more i was more going towards um so if, if you have a company like the chinese netflix that's being investigated by the SEC. um if a bu- if theoretically if a bunch of the holders in that market like if a bunch of the holders of that company live in China right because I'm pretty sure a decent number of Americans have not heard of China's Netflix before so they're not they're, I I don't know how much of a market share Americans have in that so like if if the SEC were to investigate that kind of thing would they would they a be able to like legally punish stuff like basically what i'm getting at is what is the risk for individuals in america that are that have invested in international stocks that may be under legal scrutiny by a u.s body like
1: the yeah. sec i think well i'm not sure how much they can do from a criminal perspective. But there's two things. One, if they really find something they don't like, they can always delist it. And so if it's delisted, um, then that's a, that's a big thing because it's a lot harder to purchase that company. And they're going to lose a lot of U.S. investors, which still is a considerable amount um, in terms of trading the stock. Perhaps not controlling the stock or the company, but trading the stock. And then, uh, two, if they do find things off, what they're investigating a lot of times is the financials. If, if the company has been tweaking the financials to make it seem like things are going better than they actually are. And if that is found to be a oh way they've actually, is actually a fraud? They've been um, tweaking this financials like we saw with Nikola, right? The stock's going to die because it's not actually worth what people thought it was. It doesn't really matter even from a criminal perspective. It's just about the value of the stock too.
0: Uh, okay. Well, we're at time, but I, I do want you to explain one more thing If that. Sorry. Yeah, it sounds uh, good. Can you explain what the list means and what yep. it has on the market?
1: Yeah, so there's all these exchanges um, and most, you know, brokerages go go through these exchanges. Uh, and so these, these are the major exchanges. And usually when you're in a certain exchange, a lot of the better ones, you are opening your investor base up. So more people can purchase your stock or more people are more likely to find it and it's easier for them to purchase. And so because of that, um, usually those stocks are, are uh, they go up when they join those exchanges. I know Tesla was supposed to join the S&P, which I guess is an exchange an index. But... Uh, still, uh, then it didn't happen, then it came down, I think it was like 14% then, but for certain uh, stocks that are going to be joining an uh, in, in index or an exchange, I mean, uh, it, it usually opens up your investor base, especially for financial um, stocks too, or not foreign stocks, foreign stocks, because then you have to go through, a lot, a lot of times the foreign stocks have complicated ticker names, that like all these numbers, and it's really hard to figure it out. A lot of times, a lot of brokerages won't let you invest in those. Huh. That's interesting. So it's,
0: it's, it's the, it's less about the criminality of it than, than just BUP. The investor pool that may have been driving the stock up is sort of being taken away. Huh. That, that, that's interesting. I, I, I mean, I thought the SEC may, Put down some regulations on individual buyers, like if you buy this. Stock, they could
1: probably do that too. Yeah,
0: you can get arrested or something like that. But
1: well, I don't if they could do that, but they could probably do something.
0: I that that the delisting, I, I did not think of that. That's very interesting. Uh, thanks. Um, uh, I'm we're at time now, and this was a really great discussion, Ben. Uh, thank you for coming on and uh, engaging. Uh, we we went a little bit on a different path than what we did on our trial run on Sunday but I think it will be of great interest to the viewers uh again uh I I hope I think Ben also hopes that uh you guys gained something from this that you can apply to whatever investment decisions you decide to make hopefully if If you're not if you weren't interested in in investing before, this prompted you to you know gain some interest. and hopefully all of you out there that are listening to this can make money off of some off of uh, your interest and uh, can get better results as a result of this experience. Um, real quick before you go, I owe you one thing, and that is a stock market circle plug. Uh, so Ben is part of the stock market. Well, he he runs the stock market circle. I am a part of the stock market circle. Let's let's make that distinction here. Uh, so the stock market circle they they meet every Friday, two to three PST um, on Skype, and uh, Ben usually leads the discussion, talking about the market news of the day, whether it be technicals, fundamentals. He he talks about particular stocks, sectors, financial news, acquisitions, the uh, legal stuff, pol- uh, political implications. Basically, everything that's involved in pricing stocks, he gets into. So it's not just some like super geeky charts, charts and graphs. <laughs> um, so th- that's one thing. And then, and then the other thing that uh, he's introduced is uh, a mock stock competition on investopedia where you can make trades with a million fake i think it was what a hundred thousand fake dollars yeah maybe sort we'll of,
1: expand it to a million at some point
0: sort of get that experience in competing and actually making trades without having money on the line so it's a it's it's very fun it's competitive it's a great educational experience and the meetings are also really great so uh and by the way this is a personal endorsement because i'm a member of the thing so this isn't just like an ad read where I'm, I'm trying to make money off it. I, I actually have used, I, I, I don't want to call it their product, but I've, I've been a part of it before. So my mindful my endorsement there. Anyway, thanks for uh, having you, Ben, uh, and uh, hope you have a great rest of your week.
1: Thanks, you too.